Hey everyone! Thank you for joining me on the BIPOC Outside Podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we're sitting down with Callan Shithlick-Sifsoff. Callan is a professional snowboarder, a Winter Olympian, X Games medalist, advocate with Protect Our Winters, and a professional coach. And she's joining us today from her sailboat moored in the Bay Area. So let's get into it, shall we? Callan, thank you so much for joining me this morning. How are you? Hey, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I'm stoked to be here. I'm doing great. So let's get right into it. You grew up in rural Alaska, like no big resorts, right? How did you get into snowboarding? So I, yeah, I grew up in in rural Alaska, a village of about 300 people in a town called Aleknigik, Alaska, which is on the west coast, the Bering Sea coast of Alaska. And when I was seven, I got my first snowboard and it was a hand-me-down from my brother, uh, my big brother. Uh, So he actually, he started, I don't know the exact year, but like pretty early in snowboarding when they first were coming out with with kids' boards. So the board he handed me down was actually the first kids' Sims model snowboard, which was pretty cool. So so yeah, I I grew up using my brother's hand-me-down equipment. And then snowboarding for me was basically just my brother and I every day hiking up and down mountains and hills all over our house. And back then I had a pretty limited view of what the ski industry was. Actually not at all. I didn't even know what the ski industry was. So yeah, so I grew up, my brother would mail order Transworld snowboarding videos that you could order by mail back then on VHF. So he had, I think every single TV video, which is if there's any snowboarders out there, it's definitely the, the iconic snowboard series for our sport and so I I grew up watching those with my brother and then when I was 13 12 actually turning 13 the public school system in Alaska had just cut the art programs and extracurriculars like sports and pretty much anything it was kind of a rough year for the budgeting um, for public schools and so the village schools got cut and that reason is it's a lot like a reservation community out there and a lot more remote though so you know when you're a child growing up in there there's all kinds of wilderness and then there's also a lot of other things like racism and a lack of funding for public schools about the time that the public school funding got cut in Aleknigik my mom and I moved to Girdwood which is a ski resort just outside of Anchorage just south of Anchorage and once I got there it was amazing I had no clue how cool it would be to ride a chairlift every single day instead of hiking. So yeah, once I got to Girdwood and Alyeska Ski Resort, I started snowboarding every single day after school and you can get quite a few more laps on a chairlift than you can hiking. So it was good training. And then I started doing these um, little amateur races that pretty much every ski resort around the country has. It's called USASA for amateur competitors and also mostly for little kids. The first year that I got to Girdwood, I didn't compete because I I actually didn't want to compete. I didn't really have a want to really, but the whole town did and and all my friends competed. And so I started trying the little competitions out. And then I qualified for a national competition and then lucky enough to be invited to to join a team in Colorado and then made junior world championships. And then I did pretty good at that and received a invitation for the US team, I think uh, the summer of 2005. That's amazing. That's amazing. And it's, you know, a lot of people think that snowboarding only happens or skiing only happens in very specific places, but it goes to show that you can start far away from places with chairlifts and make it all the way to the top. Yeah, it's amazing, actually. That's a great point. I've always kind of joked about this, that because it, as you probably know, you're from Canada and anyone in the ski industry or, or recreational skiers know that a powder day and backcountry snowboarding is the pinnacle of our sport. And it doesn't get any better than being alone on a mountain and or with your good friends or your, your family. And that's kind of the heart of snowboarding, actually. And what I've come to found is that that's contributed in my upbringing, how different it was has contributed in a huge way to my ability on a snowboard and competition wise, you know, where I come from is just so different and it's always helped me. It's the differences have at every stage of of my life brought complexity and brought magic. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the kind of weird start that I got in the village. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, And maybe it's 
it's a weird start, but I mean, you've made it all the way to the X Games and then to the Olympics. What was that journey like to go, you know, from a small town into Gerwood, Alaska, and then to the X Games? That's amazing. Yeah, man, I was just blown away. The first year was definitely like the coolest experience of my life. I I was really lucky because I didn't have any expectations, I think, coming from uh, a place so removed from the competitive world of snowboarding. I just genuinely had no expectations. I got this ticket to be on the U.S. team and I was just happy to to go. And so, yeah, the first year I wasn't sure if it was going to be one competition or 12 or two years or five years. It was all unknown for me at that point. And I was really lucky because that first World Cup I went to, I got third place. And I credit that first year and all the success I had to just really purity, just stoked. I was just stoked to be there and just truly in my own happy place. And when I would snowboard, I just, you know, thinking of snowboarding with my brother at home is what what got those medals that I did get. So yeah, kind of helps to tune out the chaos of the competition a little bit. And so is that how you keep yourself grounded? Just memories of home? Yeah, you know, it's funny. More so now since I've retired. That's definitely true. Memories of home. It's a hard one because I think that the experience of the Olympics is so many different parts and pieces, I think. Because when you start, you know, it's a dream. It's a huge dream from childhood for most people. Yeah, it's an interesting experience, the Olympics, because there's so many different kind of phases to it. And segments to it and and early on you know just the sheer unknown of it all is one part of it and then you know success is another part and then you know once you start to feel success you become a little bit older of an athlete and then you kind of have to so there's different parts and pieces every every year that are just a bit different and and as you mature as an athlete different things you have to kind of sort through so so yeah it was I think that the question you just asked actually comes to mind that I should have probably recalled on my my home a little bit more because it, it, you get caught up in this kind of rush of the whole production. What's I mean, almost all of us are never, ever going to make it to the Olympics. What's uh, something that would surprise us to learn about being an Olympic athlete? Ooh, that's a good question. At this point, I think all of the the little myths are blown out of the closet nowadays but but yeah I think the most surprising thing might be how pretty normal it is in one sense there's many truths to the whole thing so in one sense it's the biggest like most out of this world production and and then in another sense it's also just kind of normal life you know I actually just posted on Instagram a bit ago about being at the Olympics and I just found some old photos of kind of behind the scenes shots of the Olympics and I think that's the the biggest interesting thing about my experience is it looks a lot more grandiose I think probably from afar and then when you're there it's very much like just like anything else in the world the interesting thing about the Olympics is just how in your own world you do need to be as you go along your career each competition has the same routine and the same kind of structure and so once you get to the Olympics it's hanging out with your teammates every day and shuttling to the mountain every day just like you have been since you were little you know so it's a really interesting thing. You're doing the thing that you do every day in the same way you do it every day, but it's just on this giant scale. And then I guess one other thing that I always thought was pretty funny about my experience was the opening ceremonies. Cause I, that was the really the most mind blowing part of it. And also the most mundane part of it at the same time, it was both emotions because, you know, that's the one thing that everybody watches, at, you know, every four years, I think, since you're little. And to see the back end of the production of it was so interesting. So we staged before the opening ceremonies, I think a good six hours before it even started. Wow. And so that's another thing is, you know, behind the production, there's all, you know, athletes lined up for six hours waiting. Another interesting part of the experience is the uniforms, actually. the So there's a hired and, and I'm speaking to my own experience, this one Olympic Games, but Ralph Lauren had a hired person that would come around to every event that we staged for. 
and their sole job was to monitor all the athletes to make sure the the uniform was properly worn. And so everything from the scarf had to be placed exactly over your shoulder to the top button has to be undone. And so if you can imagine before the Vancouver Olympics, it's just incredible when you walk through those doors. I will never forget the experience of walking through the doors of of the opening ceremonies. It was uniquely the one event that it felt like my childhood dream, you know, when I walked through those doors and in the most pure sense. But the funny thing was that for six hours beforehand, we were all just stuffed up and hot <laughs> in sweaters and down jackets that we weren't allowed to unzip. And so, yeah, it's interesting. It's just the whole thing. And that's for me, I love athletics. I love, I'm a super competitive person. And then at the end of the day, I love a, a good adventure. And that's just my own personal ethos. But for me, the best part of this whole experience was experiencing these just variations on the whole experience. And as a whole, the good, the bad, the strange, the sad, the happy, it is pretty, pretty interesting and, and magic. Well, and you were lucky. It's pretty rare for an Olympic athlete to be in an Olympic game so close to home. Oh, man, I was so, so happy that, that the majority of my family could be there for the games. That's pretty rare. And also one of the best pieces for me was that the Canadian games, particularly, they highlighted the Indigenous people of Canada in such a intentional and uplifting and genuine way. And to witness that in the opening ceremonies, I didn't realize that as I walked in there, that the whole room would be filled with Indigenous dancers. And that blew me away. And then also the fact that the Vancouver Olympics had an Inuit logo as the logo of the games, uh, the Inukshuk, you know, that is really special for me. I bet. <laughs> so you said, as much as you're there for all of this, you're also there for the adventure. So What's been your best day on the snow so far, do you think? So the the ultimate best day on the snow for me was a training camp in, where were we at? We were in Los Lanes, Argentina in 2008, I want to say. And I was really fresh and still really new to the pro snowboard tour. And, and it was just a training camp, so it, it wasn't a high stress at all. And it was, it was a beautiful weather. We went on a surfing trip that, that year after. But my most favorite moment in snowboarding was we had to go from Chile to Argentina for this, this race, the Brazilian National Championships, of all things, which was held in Argentina. And so me and a couple of my teammates drove across the border and it was just magic beautiful and saw just gorgeous parts of Argentina and then as we drove further and further to the town there was a massive huge unprecedented snowstorm and this town Los Lanes was a good 60 miles away from anything and so the road was actually totally shut down and it shut down like an hour after we got through to the ski resort and so we had like epic pow for at least three days straight and the whole mountain to ourselves. So yeah, but yeah, I think my favorite day of snowboarding, it doesn't ever stop. It just continues. And truthfully, it sounds cheesy, but I think every day of snowboarding becomes a new favorite day is the truth. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I feel that way. So now, as you said, you've retired and you're moving on and you've got a bunch of projects going on. And I have to ask, what was it like advising on the Molly of Denali snowboard game? Oh, man, that was amazing. That was absolutely one of the coolest things that I've gotten a chance to help with. I got really lucky because one of the producers is from Alaska and she reached out to me and asked for some consultation on the game and I was completely blown away because I was a PBS kid my whole life and grew up on Arthur, grew up on Zoom, if any listeners know what Zoom is, that was one of my favorites and yeah, I still right now am blown away that I advised on that game and I'm really happy that that turned out so well and the producers and the PBS staff did such a great job really my role was just kind of looking over some of the details but those guys 
made the game what it is. So, yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. yeah. Also, love PBS. Big fan of Muppets. And I love that it's like available to all children, right? It's not something behind a paywall or it's, it's really Absolutely. Absolutely. And the cool thing was my family, you know, I don't know that we would have ever had cable if we had it available anyway, but in rural Alaska, there actually was no cable at that time, period. So there wasn't any cell phones. Well, obviously no cell phones, but rural Alaska traditionally has never had any available cable hookup. So they do have a PBS channel that's aired. And so that's, you know, if it weren't for PBS, then we literally would not have been watching anything. And it's incredibly special to help with that particular TV show because it's the first um, Indigenous cartoon character on a TV show. So it's a groundbreaking show to begin with and groundbreaking that they come up with such incredible ideas for content and can't say enough good about that TV show. And now you're coaching the next generation and you have been even this season all over the globe coaching at different different locations different teams what's your coaching philosophy my coaching philosophy is evolving constantly and i'm still in a learning process i don't know that you ever stop with that but i'd say my coaching philosophy is to keep it real simple and there's technical aspects to coaching and that's drawing upon my own experience and things I've seen over the last 10 years. But primarily, it's just the role of a coach is to be there. I think that these environments of athletics can be really chaotic. They can be really stimulating of all different sorts. And so the role of a coach is really to kind of just be a steadfast help. I mean, it's, I think we don't need to overcomplicate coaching in some some cases and for snowboarding keeping it simple is actually a really good baseline and philosophy to have so yeah but I'm learning I'm always learning how to coach so (laughs) (laughs) earlier this season you were coaching with the Paralympic team and on Instagram you had so much to say about how much heart is in that area of the sport do you want to talk about that a little bit Yeah, man. I So yeah, I've been coaching for six years now and then snowboarding since I was seven, competing since 2005. And I really didn't understand until I got to the para team this year, how, how fun and how pure athletics and sport and the exemplification of sportsmanship, heart, soul, physical, athletic prowess like I've never seen before, really on the parasite. And the athleticism is what really has blown me away. And I think from para-athletes, what I've seen is just a work ethic and athleticism purely that is pretty unique. I think a lot of these athletes out of necessity have to be very, very talented, natural athletes in some cases to begin with in order to be able to manipulate technically their prosthetic and that's that's something that I don't know that you can teach in some cases with a natural ability and it's been really cool to see the the level of competition in the Paralympics and to witness para snowboarders be able-bodied athletes and catch up with them and and give them a run for their money, if not way more, and teach them things. You know, it's really magic. And I will forever be grateful for this year of coaching the Paralympic team. Yeah. So there are, I mean, you have reached the pinnacle of the sport. Now you're coaching the next generation. There's a lot of kids who look up to you. Who do you look up to? One of my biggest idols in snowboarding from the moment that I moved to Birdwood to Alyeska Ski Resort is Rosie Fletcher who's the bronze medalist in the Torino games. And when I first moved to Girdwood, I remember going to the Double Muskie restaurant where she was doing a signing and she had little posters that she was signing for people. And so that was the first time I'd met her. I was 12 and that was super memorable for me. And that was the first time that I actually saw that that was something possible, I think, that moment and led me to go for the Olympics, actually, straight from Rosie Fletcher. And I know she's a idol for many, many athletes in Alaska. So, And another one is Seth Westcott, who's a former teammate of mine. And he's the gold medalist for the Torino Olympics and also the Vancouver Olympics. 
And so Seth has just always been, just been a huge inspiration to me in every way. And I really appreciate his philosophy on life, on snowboarding, and the way he navigates his ethos and contributes his voice to climate change and things that matter authentically. So there's a few characters in snowboarding that I really admire. And then aside from that, I really do like just meeting people and having conversations and and learning. Even though I've gone on this journey of being an Olympian, quote unquote, there's many facets to everybody. And for me, that's what's always helped my performance and my athletic career is just being open and interested to people and perspectives. And so honestly, to answer that question of who are the people that inspire you, not to be cheesy at all, but, but like homeless people that I've talked to inspire me and people on the bus that don't know you're an Olympian inspire me, you know? So there's the inspiration that I get from, from idols kind of traditionally, but I also have always just really enjoyed the like variety of human perspective and how you can learn so many different things from literally everybody. That's such a great answer. Talking more about the next generation, what advice would you have for people who are new to snow sports? A lot of our listeners are are just getting into it or some folks haven't even tried yet. They've just, you know, they've seen a couple cool videos. They're like, maybe this is something I'd like to try. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I say try it for everybody. Skiing and snowboarding is truly, it's so silly. It's sliding on a piece of wood, but it is one of the the best feelings in the world. And my advice for anybody that is gonna try snowboarding out for the first time, I would recommend getting a lesson. And if you can't afford a lesson, don't let that be a barrier to entry. Go and try it out yourself. Half the snowboarders I know learn to snowboard on their own or from their big brother that didn't tell them anything. I think I would say it would make it a lot easier for you to get a lesson. However, you can literally pick up snowboarding on a sledding hill in a podunk town wherever you're at, and that is snowboarding. Snowboarding doesn't mean you have to go live in Park City or Lake Tahoe or Whistler. It's literally just being on a mountain and sliding down and then you're a snowboarder. And then the last piece might be be prepared to fall all the time when you're first learning because you're going to fall a lot, but just be patient. Totally. And get back up. Yeah. Um, And like you were saying, you know, at the top of the interview, you did this backwards. You started in the backcountry. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend that for beginners. Like make sure you have a nice padded down slope, not powdery. That's one thing. Do not attempt your first well I won't tell anyone not to do anything just try it (laughs) and and what advice do you have for people that you know they've got their basis of skills and they're they're starting to think about maybe they would like to try the backcountry what advice do you have for them so when you do get to a point when you want to go touring and you want to get outside of the ski resort or even hiking out of bounds out of the ski resort. As you kind of progress in snowboarding, you want to be more and more aware of safety because it's an extreme sport. So as you push the envelope a little bit, things will get progressively dangerous. It's not dangerous to go to the ski resort. And if you break your bone, bones heal, no big deal. But as you you get better and better, paying attention to the real dangers of the outside world. And as you move away from a ski resort, you also lose the safety of the human protection there. But yeah, just be super knowledgeable about avalanche danger. I, I would say 100% take an avalanche course before you go out of bounds at a ski resort or in the backcountry. Um, it can be really dangerous. And even the best people, the best, are in danger equally as much as anyone else. So for anybody picking up backcountry snowboarding, buy yourself the full gamut of equipment and you can never spend too much on safety equipment. And one thing to note about snowboarding and skiing, this is one of the most expensive sports in the world, but it it doesn't have to be. And gear can be gotten secondhand. I mean, the equipment that got me to the U.S. team was basic. I mean, it wasn't anything special. And I think coming full circle to one of your 
first question is that as you go forward for goals and for reaching success and and all the things that you want and that you can see on a national scale from afar, just realizing that a lot of these things are not as grandiose as it appears on TV. You know, what got Sean White to the Olympics is a basic pair of snow pants and a pair of sunglasses. I don't even think they made goggles back then. So what my first snowboard boots were Sorel boots, actually. They weren't even snowboard boots. And so, you know, there's all of these very concrete things that are set in place in our world. There's cut and dry things you have to complete to make it and put the work in. But at the end of the day, most of these things are all human. And when, when it comes down, the equipment that gets someone to the Olympics is the same thing that you can buy at a Salvation Army store tomorrow. I come comparatively to 90% of the snowboard world. I come from a very different background and where ski and snowboard equipment are not readily available. But that does not mean that you can't participate. So coaching is not all you're doing for the future generation. In 2019, you provided testimony to the Natural Resources Committee regarding examining the impacts of climate change on public lands. That was amazing. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, man. I was privileged and lucky to be able to speak at the congressional hearing last year. And so for since 2012, I've been an ambassador for Protect Our Winners, which is a nonprofit that seeks to educate the ski and snowboard industry and now branching further to all outdoor recreation. At this point, we all know about climate change, but back in 2012, the idea behind it, the founder was intending to introduce the concept of climate change to the ski and snowboard world. And at this point has definitely happened. And I think as a contingent, for the ski and snowboard world, we hold a really strong voice right now. And a large part of that is due to protect our winners. So I am supremely grateful for for their invitation in 2012 to be a part of their organization. And so I've done a lot of work with them over the years and kind of just gone on different projects that they were working on for congressional visits. And I wrote an op-ed piece in 2012, which is how I was actually invited to be on POW in the first place, which was about the pebble mine in Alaska. And so this last year, I actually was requested to be on that congressional panel by Deb Ballon, the chairwoman of the House Natural Resources Committee. So Deb Ballon officially asked me to to speak on the panel and immediately I jumped at it and I was pretty damn nervous. But I think the only congressional hearing I'd ever seen was the Mr. Rogers congressional panel that he did. And so that was a high mark to watch because it was really nerve wracking and crazy to actually, I've seen many on TV, but I've never even imagined what it looks like in the room or anything. Yeah, I actually, I was really starstruck the whole experience with Deb Hellon. And I wrote out a huge piece and then I ended up not even remotely sticking to the script and I just kind of went off the cuff. And so I didn't actually watch it again. So I don't know if I nailed it or if I blew it, but- You nailed it. Oh, good, good, nice. But yeah, I, I kind of just spoke from the heart and spoke to things that I've seen firsthand. So most of that is at home in Alaska where we all know is ground zero for climate change in the Arctic. And so there's all of the kind of buzzwords that we all know about, like coastal erosion is happening, glacier erosion is happening. But then there's other parts and pieces that aren't as well known about and a little bit smaller. Like one of the things I brought up that's, I was actually advised not to bring it up, but I did end up talking about it, was I spoke about the cloudberry, which is in Alaska, we call it the salmonberry. And that's just my most favorite food in the world. It's delicious and my favorite thing to eat, but also it's a really special berry and it can be easily over harvested. It's very sensitive tundra berry. And so they grow on single little tiny little starts out as a flower and then so so small and so fragile and tiny I've always loved how my auntie Helen when she'd take me berry picking just hearing my grandpa and my auntie talk about how important it is for us as kids to not go running around over picking berries and to to be careful and just having that constant kind of reminder from my family from my community 
as a norm, but particularly Auntie Helen, I remember, and my mom, you know, educating me as we went to pick berries about this plant is pretty sensitive and you can't over harvest it. And what we've been seeing in, in the last five years to the last 10 years is the increasing ruin. So with the cloudberry, what's been happening is it's really sensitive to climate and just small things in our area. You can see changes and differences in berry populations. But one of the pieces that people don't readily see is on the ground in all these little microcosms around the world where we live and what's going on. Other than the bigger parts like glacial erosion, there are many different changes happening in regions all over the world that indigenous people, for example, take note of. But yeah, so for me, I think Deb Halan being the chairwoman of that panel made me feel very comfortable to speak to issues that were personal and personal to my indigenous culture. And so I was really happy to get the opportunity to talk about all of these pieces that I've seen in Alaska firsthand and also through my family. So I spoke to these things just kind of organically in the panel and I was super nervous and I don't remember if I pulled it off, but I couldn't be more thankful and and grateful to be a part of that. That was an amazing experience. Well, um, I read your op-ed and I watched your testimony and I think you nailed it. (laughs) And I, I think that it's, I don't, maybe I don't know the right word, but I think it's so important that we have our, well, I shouldn't say we, I'm, you know, sort of a part-time American occasionally, but have the first Indigenous Secretary of the Interior and Indigenous peoples have been on the forefront of climate change across North America. So I can understand why it would be, it would be a benefit for you to have her be chairing that panel. Of the coolest moments all I'll have in my memory for sure. Okay. So you're not just speaking out on climate issues. You've also been really outspoken on social justice issues, particularly speaking out on behalf of the LGBTQ plus community. And I think that that was really brave the way that you took a stance in the Sochi Olympics. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. That was a really kind of impromptu interview, actually, the ESPN interview. And personally, since day one of my career in snowboarding, I've never separated out my morals and my voice from my snowboarding. And that's never been, it's never been a choice to do that. It's just ingrained kind of in who I am for better or for worse. And if anything, I'm not afraid to use my voice. And it's, it's, you know, I'm sure a lot of people on my team have been annoyed by this voice, but I still say it loud and proud anyway. Using my voice has always been a survival tactic for me. Navigating spaces kind of that are primarily white and primarily other cultures that are very different from mine. And for me, because I made the U.S. team at such a young age, I've always held my personal ethos and my snowboarding with value equally. And so over the years, I've gotten comments, especially during that Sochi ESPN piece, a lot of the commentary from Alaska was that I should shut up and stick to my sport and stick to snowboarding. And I find that as an athlete, people generally are a little bit shocked when you are using your voice traditionally, other than the last couple of years. That wasn't real common. I've never just been a snowboarder. I've never just been from rural Alaska. Not to sound too woo-woo, but I do believe it's important that every person in our society as a whole use their voice. I think we have a tendency to not want like too many voices in the conversation, but I have the opposite opinion when we're talking about social justice and activism. It's important for marginalized communities to speak to truths that they see whether that's a daily thing or a weekly thing. And for me, on the U.S. snowboard team, that was something I would have to utilize every day with with my team. And it's not a negative thing, but as people of color, you know, we do have to navigate the world a little bit differently than other people. And the way I did that from a young age was always to speak my voice. And only then can we carve out any kind of room for us. And if we don't speak our voice about these topics, whether it's race, climate, sexuality, orientation, any of the above, these topics will disappear. So we can't expect to like, whether you're a snowboarder, whether you are a writer or a 
video game developer, it doesn't matter. It's important that we all talk about things, talk about our experiences. And the world of skiing and snowboarding can tend to have a pretty typical model and background. And so just simply the way that I dealt with that was to voice what I thought when I heard racist conversations or sexist conversations. It helped me show up to my race ready with confidence and if I didn't use my voice I do not believe I would have been able to perform to the best of my ability so that's just been an inherent piece to the way I navigate my life and the ESPN piece I was so grateful that they reached out to me at the Sochi thing I don't believe there was a lot of commentary about the Russian laws against being gay I didn't hear of it at all in the ski and snowboard world much or even the winter sports world at all so i heard a lot of conversations about the russian anti-gay laws from my friends from my peers from my neighbors from my family these are conversations that if you are lgbt or q it affects you so these were conversations i've been having already and for espn to of their own volition highlight that part of the 2014 games was awesome and i am so grateful to espn for doing that piece and uh, it was impromptu though it was the irony i, I didn't actually quote unquote boycott the olympics actually i mean I, I really was just thinking of it as a place to voice exactly what I thought. I certainly wanted to go to the Olympics, but I ended up blowing my knee out actually is the real reason. But yeah, so that right before, but I, whether it's the anti-gay laws from Russia or, you know, things that happened last week or today, I think it's important that I, and I also believe it's important that our world in general takes part in conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You said earlier about the many facets of yourself as a person. And I always find that you speak brilliantly about the intersections of your personality as a woman of color, as a native Alaskan, mm -hmm. as a gay person. Do you find that people try to pigeonhole you in one box? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely, yeah, totally. I think it's funny because, yeah, I feel like humans like to pigeonhole people. It just makes things simpler. And what do I know? But I find that that's like the case with most uh, things in the world, actually. It's maybe hard for people to hold. For me, holding intersectionalities, like my indigenous culture, my love of snowboarding, my love of boats, and all these little hobbies that I have, they are meaningful to me and they contribute to the passion that I bring into snowboarding. And I think without all of those pieces, my picture is not accurate. So I think we all probably, I think every year in this world that we're in right now, with social justice and all this, we're learning, I think as a human population to be a little bit more inclusive of all these truths. Cause we have in every industry, every topic that we're talking about, we all get linear real quick with uh, topics. So last year you spoke out on the increased public awareness surrounding issues of inclusion and equality. What are the positive changes that you're seeing in the ski and snowboard world? Yeah, they're a little bit slow to the giddy up, honestly. The snowboard industry is not the most woke. That's And I really have seen very little change, to be honest with you, since I've seen a lot of cultural change in the world that we live in in America. And these conversations are happening everywhere from, again, like my friends all over the Bay Area and all over industries talking about diversity and inclusion. And the U.S. ski and snowboard team is actually pretty far behind on that journey. They're making strides. But so last winter, the U.S. team had their first ever, to my knowledge, symposium on race and inclusion. And I was really let down by the panel that I listened to. I was not encouraged by the conversation, but I'm happy that at least those things are being started. And I, I'm happy with the fact that the U.S. team has put in place. I'm not sure about the U.S. team, but the U.S. Paralympic team has put in place a people and culture department that is there to encourage people of color. There are real huge changes in the Paralympic side of things, for sure. And they've taken a immediate and prioritized a process for handling diversity and inclusion and in, in people of color and the problems that they might 
face. The U.S. ski and snowboard team has a lot of problems with race. I'm happy to have seen the conversations begin, but I do believe that there needs to be some force to encourage the process and make sure that conversation within the industry isn't happening by white people, but that the industry is being educated by people of color before embarking on a journey of talking about racial issues. I think that would be very important to A, providing a safe space for athletes, people of color athletes, women of athletes coming to the US snowboard team. I think that would be beneficial for all staff members, the admin staff, market coaches, because at this point in time, there is no diversity and inclusion training whatsoever for staff members or athletes, and that's not talked about whatsoever. So. I had a, a very violent experience with a team member on the US team. I'm gonna write an uh, op-ed piece potentially for the New York Times about it. So yeah, my last year on the US team was not a good experience for me. And it was 2014 and there was a team member, a pretty prominent US team member had continuously that year said, the n-word on purpose over and over in front of me and I had firmly told him not to and he firmly repeatedly would do it the entire season on purpose looking me in the eye and would not stop saying that word and so in 2014 in Lake Louise Canada it was the last Olympic qualifier and the entire season, I have heard extremely racist things out of this athlete's mouth routinely. I had heard rape jokes about other athletes routinely. And particularly this athlete was not responsive to my plea to stop saying the N-word. He repeatedly said it over and over and over again throughout the season. And it came to a head in Lake Louise, Canada. In the van ride back to the hotel, Kanye West came on the radio. And I had at this point gotten used to hearing the athlete repeatedly say racist things around any kind of topic of a black person. And so Kanye West came on the radio and he turns and he looks at me and he says, Kanye West gives black people a really bad name. I immediately turned to him and said to keep his mouth shut for the remainder of the van ride and that's I'm not going to listen to racist anything in the van ride right now and he did he kept his mouth shut it was quiet in the van not a single one of my teammates chimed in about any of the racial violence honestly that this athlete was doing constantly I was the only person on the U.S. team to take any offense whatsoever at his behavior so we get to the hotel and we park and I immediately get out of the van rapidly to get back to my room and away from the athlete and my teammates are right behind me as we approach the corridor from the parking garage and I open the corridor I go down and I have maybe four or five athletes behind me. And this athlete was three people back from me. And he cupped his hand over his mouth and he said, N-word, 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 N-word. He said the N-word, not exaggerating, probably about 25 times through the corridor, yelling at me. And then when I exited the corridor, I waited for him to funnel through. And I firmly told him, if you say that one more time, and he interrupted me and he loomed over me, probably about six inches from my face, and he fake punched me and he went, what? What are you going to do about it? N-word, N-word, N-word. And I was livid. I did not know what to do. I was terrified. I was, I was shaking. I turned around and walked to my elevator with really nothing else to do or say available. And uh, so I turned around, walked back to my elevator, and this athlete followed me all the way over into the elevator. And then I took the stairs up. And this athlete is pretty celebrated, not only on the U.S. team, but also he is like a very well-known and well-celebrated athlete. Oh, sorry. I had a little anger in that story. No, your anger is valid. I'm so sorry. That's okay. But that's just kind of, that was every day. That was every, every day, that kind of stuff. I think the time period that I was an athlete was 
just ever so right before our world started becoming aware of these things. And for the longest time, I could use my voice all I wanted individually, but it did very little to change things. And I'm so grateful to be in a space in our world right now, however brief or long it might be. I'm so happy to have a moment in time where it's safe to talk about these things. And not only that, but all of our collective voices are helping all of our individual struggles that I think people of color mutually feel on any given day. I think that these things can feel really personal and individual, but what I can see that's been helping and allowing us to have this podcast conversation in earnest the volume of voices that are talking about it. So coming full circle, it's a relief to me as a female athlete and a person of color to look at conversations in the athletic world that are happening, to see that young women are being protected from sexual abuse as, as much as we can right now with the Larry Nassar laws. And then also that space is being ever so etched out for people of color. It's really amazing to watch you know, Simone Biles, the tennis player, and strong people of color, women athletes that are etching that out. Like, it doesn't matter if it's there or if it's not. It, it feels like a moment where we are making space as people of color. And that feels really good. So, yeah, it wasn't really the safest place when I was on the team, but I'm really stoked at what young ladies coming up have to look forward to because it's a different world. Absolutely, it's a different world. What advice do you have for us, the the sporting public, the ski and snowboard public, to help push and help advance these positive changes we need to see? Quite frankly, we need to see them. Yeah, I'd say I think the biggest thing in the ski and snowboard industry particularly, and I'm sure if it's true for where I come from, I'm sure it is for every industry. I think the biggest thing is there's a lot of silence, the ski and snowboard industry, when you hear toxicity, there's a, an absence of conversation about toxicity, about race. And I have plenty of friends in my personal life in snowboarding, and then also in my career in snowboarding, people and friends that I love and care about that do not have a good narrative on race and are unaware of many things being talked about in the world right now that they need to be caught up on. And for me, when I am in circles of snowboarding, I often feel racism. I often feel sexism, a little bit less so than before. That one is pretty good. Like sexism has really been eliminated. And now people of color need to also be respected in this world too. And I think the biggest thing we can all do is just you know, on the chairlift, when you hear a dumbass comment out of someone's mouth that's racist, misogynist, just nicely talk about it. Like, you don't have to make an argument. You don't not have to make an argument, too. But I mean, just I, I think that the time has come where when we hear conversations around us that are violent towards people of color, that are that are degrading of people of color, that are just minor racist comments or big ones, we need to say something at an immediate and face-to-face -face level to the person we're hearing. I think there are many, many people that have a really good narrative on race that I watch be quiet around toxic, misogynist, racist conversations that I happen to know someone isn't even aligned with, but they'll be quiet on the chairlift or a ski trip. And these issues aren't just feel good issues, they matter to people's lives. They matter to who becomes the next US team members. They matter to who who has a good day or not, you know? So it's just, there's no time to be quiet. Absolutely. Callan, this has been an absolute privilege. I have to ask you, what does the future look like for you? What's next for you? I, well, for me, Actually, I had planned to coach this full year for the Paralympic team, but the COVID, you know, with all the COVID stuff going on. So I think for me, this will be my last year of coaching and it's been a wonderful experience. And I never thought I would be a snowboard coach really ever. And it's been really fun to be a coach and I will be grateful. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to move on to, I'm working on a, a business plan, actually. I have, always have too many little projects going on, but yeah. That's okay. Right now, I have a new plan, actually, a 10-year plan or however long it takes. I'm learning to sail right now, so 
I live on a boat and that's kind of what my hobby and boat work actually occupies all of your time. So um, <laughs> yeah, I've been learning to sail and then working on my boat and I hope to eventually one day just go on a cruise around the world one day. That's a fantastic yeah. goal. One last question. So you have been doing media stuff forever. Lots of interviews, lots of television. What's one question that you've always wanted to answer, but no one's ever asked? Good question. That is the best question. That's a hard one. No one's ever asked me like, I guess no one's ever asked me what it feels like to snowboard. Tell me what it feels like. All right. If you can get, if you can put the time to just get a little bit good at snowboarding, like three months, you will get to a place where you can start carving and once you can start carving on your edge, on a snowboard specifically, because I ski too, but different from skis, on a snowboard, your whole body gets into that turn. And it's a momentum that you have total control over and yet is chaotic and scary, but also not scary at all. I mean, snowboarding is such a rad feeling and indescribable. And I hope people get a chance to do it because it's such a silly concept, but it is so much fun. <laughs> I love that. So where do our listeners find you? Where, where can we support your projects? What's going on? Well, I'm actually kind of a radical a little bit in a good way. And so I try to not be on Instagram. I am on Instagram for sure. And like anyone, please add me as a friend anytime. I've been trying to plan for a time to delete my social media, but it just hasn't happened yet. I don't have a website. Honestly, the answer to that is once I retired, I kind of, you know, I'm, I don't really need to have a marketing platform. So it's one of those things, kind of a practice to experience a new side of life that's not for anybody else but me. But, uh, but yeah, with all these kind of like projects on the way, I am going to make a website. And so I'll, I'll make sure to post that once I have one. But in the meantime, I put my email out, you know, and anyone can always email me to get in touch. My email is callanalaska at gmail.com. Amazing. Thank you. And the links to that will be in the show notes for everyone. Callan, thank you so much for the privilege of your time today. I really appreciated this conversation. Chris, thank you so much. It's It's been awesome to meet you. And I, I can't wait to meet in person after COVID one day. <laughs> yeah, we'll get a couple yeah. laps for sure somewhere. Yeah, Whistler. I, I'm due for a trip to Whistler. Yeah, I'll meet you in Whistler for sure. <laughs> Or Revelstoke. Just up the road. Sweet. Thank you so much, Chris. And and yeah, thank you for, for having this podcast and another opportunity to use our voices. And that is it for another episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Links on where to find Callan are available on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. This conversation was an absolute privilege for me. And if it was a privilege for you too, don't hesitate to smash the like button. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of BIPOC Outside.